Welcome to the 15th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together in our self-isolating pajamas to talk about particular keywords and how they relate to the current historical moment. The keyword for today is streaming, and uh, although we think we might venture off on some other topics as well, but streaming it is, and we have as guest Finola Kerrigan. Alan, would you like to introduce Finola, please? Certainly I would. Finola Kerrigan is Professor of Marketing and indeed Head of Marketing at Birmingham University. She's author of the book Film Marketing and has edited books on arts marketing, rethinking arts marketing, and is generally a towering figure within the world of arts marketing, especially here in the UK. So hello, Finola. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alan. Hi, Joel. Thanks so much for inviting me onto this podcast, which I've been enjoying uh, during our quarantine period. Um, Finola, the term that we've identified today is not a term that Raymond Williams would have included in his 1976 uh, keywords, uh, and that word is streaming. Uh, would you think it's useful to think of this as a relatively new practice? Yeah, I think uh, it is definitely a rel- it's a new practice and it's uh, something that's come from the technological possibilities that have um, come to the fore in the last two decades, I'd say. And uh, it's kind of interesting because when Stuart Hall was talking about uh, Raymond Williams' work, he talked about the fact that Williams moved between intelligence and emotion, thought and feeling. And when we decided to talk about streaming, I definitely had an emotional reaction. Streaming has been kind of uh, positioned as this democratization of culture in many ways. So previous to this, it was hard to access what we wanted. So uh, we were very much um, beholden to physical access to particular films, TV shows, music, whatever it was. And this idea that streaming meant that everything was online, we could just get whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. And um, that might be a great popular perception around streaming. But for me, somebody who studies the film industry particularly, but also other entertainment industries, that's definitely not the case. And so while uh, in film and and TV, the early possibilities around democratization and access to these um, areas was through BitTorrent. uh, And BitTorrent was very much about opening up access to film and TV that we couldn't get through the the marketplace. That technology was very quickly co-opted by for-profit companies who wanted to make sure that whatever profit there was to be extracted from that, they they did extract that. And I'm not kind of against artists being rewarded for their work. It's just that these platforms generally don't really give a lot of the profit back to the people who've made the film and TV shows. So I have a kind of emotional and intellectual kind of response to this word streaming, but it's definitely something that is more recent, but it is something that's in everyone's lives now, particularly in this lockdown period. There's a perception that because life has stopped, which we know for most of us, life hasn't stopped. And in many cases, life has become more intense. But the idea is that we're all at home with high-speed internet, uh, streaming film and TV and music that brings joy to our lives that we've selected for ourselves, uh, curated for ourselves. And I think that it's uh, when we look at the industrial structures, that isn't necessarily the case. One of the criticisms that's often made about Netflix is that it tends to have a lot of show about murdering women. What's, what's that all about? 
Uh, yeah, I guess uh, what Netflix does is it gives us the stories that people have wanted to make. And a lot of those stories, uh, the people who make them are looking at people or telling stories about people. And violence against women is, well, violence against women is something that is a very uh, big thing in society. And we know that, you know, domestic violence is a huge killer of women. Uh, so it's not surprising that we have a lot of TV and films that's about violence against women. But I guess the other thing is that we have to look at who's making these shows and who's allowed to tell stories. And I think generally who's allowed to tell stories are predominantly men, predominantly middle class people, predominantly kind of dominant social classes. Uh, and so they decide what the stories are that we like. And also I think that a lot of the current uh, kind of focus on um, on the killing of women comes from the kind of Nordic noir popularity. And I guess this comes back to another one of my kind of issues with Netflix is why are we watching what we're watching? And I would argue we're not watching those shows because we love seeing women killed, but we're watching them because there's a really interesting sensibility. There's an interesting kind of storytelling going on. Um, it's different to the Hollywood kind of presentation of people. So people look differently and, you know, are more interesting characters. And I think that when you look at the Netflix algorithm, it's very, even though at one point it was talked about as the most sophisticated algorithm kind of around, uh, it's, it's still based on really simplistic market segmentation. So we as kind of marketing professors know that gender and, you know, age don't really determine our consumption. We know it's much more complex. But a lot of these tech companies still revert to very basic kind of ways of segmenting the market. So they go, oh, there's a show about murdering women. Let's make loads of shows about murdering women. This issue of, for example, with the Nordic drama, um, let's talk about this issue of how stories that are set somewhere specific lead people to have a specific view of that place. Do you think that there's a reinforcing of stereotypes going on, a sort of an exoticization, or does it help broaden people to have a more cosmopolitan um, acceptance of TV rather than just rely on the Anglo-American uh, diet of television? I think the variety is, is brilliant, right? And um, we know that when we watch stories about people, we think they're real. So this kind of ontological position of film and TV is really, really strong. So even though we know that we're watching entertainment or we know that it's made up, we think it's true. And if you look at how historical drama has has played out you know who's the hero and who's the villain that's always really strongly controlled so we we kind of really incorporate this into our understanding of people so we look at the origins of the U.S. film industry so that was seen very quickly as a way to export being American to the world teach people how to be American subjects citizens consumers etc and it's been very successful but also with the uh, the British kind of activity in the colonial film unit, teaching people colonial subjects how to be good British citizens or take on this message. So we know that that's, that's really, really strong. And I think that the more stories we see about other people, the better. What we have to think about is, like, are those stories representative? And I think it's impossible, like, you might be able to comment a bit better on representations of people in that part of the world than I would be. But um, it's really important to have a variety of stories and also that the perspectives being presented are somewhat representative of the people in those stories. And um, 
there's a, a great chapter in the book To Exist is to Resist by Dorrit Jones, where she talks about this concept of first look. And so that in the, in the idea of first look, you think about the context in which the film or the TV show was, was produced and who's making it and what they're trying to put forward. But you also think about your subject position as the viewer. So, so how are you bringing your viewership to doing it? So when I watch those shows, which I'm a huge consumer of them, to the point where one of my friends said, I can't believe you still come to Sweden. Aren't you afraid to be murdered? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I watch those shows, but I watch them as an Irish woman watching them. And I really enjoy them because I think I find a lot of American shows the same or I don't particularly relate to the culture maybe as a European as strongly as I relate to other European cultures. But I think it's really important. So what we've seen since these Scandinavian shows have been popular is a huge increase in tourism to the region, an increase in um, people following on from the IKEA effect, I guess, people wanting this kind of Nordic lifestyle or kind of uh, embracing that more strongly. And, And we've seen that with the popularity of Korean film and TV as well and pop culture. One thing I've really enjoyed is the opportunity to watch the telenovela. Kate del Castillo shows are, are my particular favourite. But it, it's it's interesting to think of telenovela because we often think through this Anglo-American perspective of shows like Friends dominating television. But in fact, the telenovela is probably the biggest genre of television in the world. And it's amazing, really, how something so big has been inaccessible to us for so long. And Chari Alkin's work on the Turkish soap operas and their popularity in former Ottoman areas and so on shows that the that the film and TV we English language uh, people who are in English language context the ones that we're most exposed to are mainly this kind of America these American shows but they're not the ones that are producing the most or or consuming the most so also if you look at kind of Nigeria Nigerian film huge volume uh, and huge audiences and similarly for like Indian film uh, huge volume huge audiences and yet we're only seeing through streaming platforms we're only seeing some of those breaking through into our markets so we're allowed to watch some of them on these platforms and kind of broaden our horizons. I'd like to also approach the issue in general from the perspective of the society of the spectacle and the idea that our culture Increasingly, we can say it's literally become a video culture. So two things that for me are of interest. One is how it activates or how it's active. And also, even if speculatively, how it passivizes or how this culture can be seen as more passive. So first, from the perspective of activation, now that we can say YouTube, Vimeo, whatever, uh, there's so and so many hundreds of hours uploaded every second or something, So everything has become this flurry of productivity in producing this culture of the image. Uh, Everything becomes increasingly spectacularized and everything is also increasingly ephemeral in the sense that you watch a video, you're expecting to watch a new one. Videos are constantly in the backgrounds of our lives. Uh, So there is this call for productivity for everybody of course, again, as you already noted, on corporate platforms that now are increasingly the canvas of our culture, if you will. 
But there is also this amnesia and forgetfulness as the speed of this video audiovisual information is just so so mesmerizing. Maybe like Paul Virilio would have said, it's vertiginous. It's almost like you're staring to the sun. So how do you feel just in general? I know this is a very general question. How do you feel in general this kind of streaming or YouTube YouTuber culture is now part of our lives and uh, how should we start to look at that? Yeah, I think uh, that kind of Virilio reference is really important because I think what's happening is we have all the kind of the kind of frenzied YouTube uh, consumption where we are very intolerant and we watch a few seconds and then we we're on to the next one or they're share. I mean, I don't know how many WhatsApp groups you're, you're experiencing at the moment where people are continually sharing like TikTok clips and YouTube clips and so on. So there's that in the one hand where we're being told to produce content, we're sharing content nonstop. And then the really intense, um, immersion that people are having in these audiovisual contexts. So, so gaming contexts where people spend hours really engrossed in either individual gameplay or multi-player uh, kind of experiences, but also in in watching multiple episodes of TV shows and um, the recent um, story in Marketing Theory by Scott Jones on uh, on streaming TV shows really captures that very well. He talks about kind of it takes over your life and you retreat into your kind of viewing world and you are encouraged by the way these platforms work to go from one episode to another episode or in YouTube to go from one video to another video. And so I think that that, that kind of play of time is really, really important. So it's almost like we're trying to slow down some of these um, compulsions to consume media very quickly and in a very kind of throwaway fashion to immerse ourselves in storytelling that's more engaging and long form. And I think that part of that is the industry responded very well to our lack of attention. So so we saw with kind of the development of TV shows like The Wire, where we really had to slow down, pay attention, follow everything very carefully, or we couldn't engage with that show. And that was a reaction against the fact that people were moving away from watching film and TV and watching kind of YouTube clips and videos. And our attention was being taken away from the kind of things that the film industry and the TV industries were making. To add to that, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about the subjectivity of the rise of the YouTuber personality. So it would seem to me, maybe I'm wrong, this is just the sense I'm getting that many of these subjectivities, such as the YouTuber or the Twitch gamer who streams games online, they are really embedded in a massive ideology of individuality and entrepreneurship, or not only due to their uh, physical surroundings, which is typically sitting at home and streaming a game, for example, for hours on end, but also the idea that if you make it and you become popular, there seems to be a great tendency to feel that this is something you made through your own individual genius. I think I see it here and there. And on top of which, of course, thinking about, for example, esports, where the whole sports surrounding becomes now owned by a company. So, of course, we've always had sponsors, sponsorship in sports. But now the idea is that the whole sport, the whole environment, the whole virtual life world is now a por- corporate product that not only allows you 
for the streamer to create a living, but also you are completely dependent on it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that whole kind of entrepreneurialization, let's say, of creativity is rampant now. And it's very much this idea of, you know, you have to have your side hustle and you have to uh, make what you can from your content and all this kind of thing. And the winner in this, of course, are the big corporations. So so Google uh, by uh, people kind of putting their stuff on YouTube and so on. But what's kind of inter- what I think is very interesting in that as well is the is the tussle between these new media forms and platforms and the kind of traditional media. So so what we see now are TV shows about esports stars, uh, Twitchers, uh, influencers, and how they made all of their money. So it's kind of like TV uh producers recognizing that they're losing revenue to people who are watching people play video games or watching people do esports and so in order to bring that audience back let's make a tv show about how people get rich uh doing these things so that's really interesting and it's also that 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 kind of idea again that absolute neoliberal idea that if you're not making it it's your fault so again we see a lot of these myths that we've that we're very familiar with in the arts world coming to the fore so arts and sport you know the kind of um working class kid made good um people taking their talents and using them uh, so you don't necessarily have to be really talented in the traditional sense now you just have to be able to exploit these platforms so it's really yeah definitely it's a real embrace embracing of uh, of this entrepreneurial kind of concept and then that was the active part. So uh, everybody more or less is obliged to become productivity itself. Then if we look at the passive part or the passivizing part, already long, long ago, uh, Fuller wrote about interpassivity, which uh, succinctly is the idea that you invest your emotion onto the screen. So for example, in comedy, you used to have background laughter. So it's literally laughing for you. So you don't need to invest your own affective energy for that. And I'm also thinking about McLuhan's hot and cool media here. And of course, the idea that, you know, the the whole promise of Web 2.0 was the idea that we would have worldwide participation and people would discuss and people would feel uh, more uh, interconnected and more active. The most striking thing I personally see when we can talk about Twitch chat or we can talk about YouTube comments is the utter lack of communication that's going on there. Uh, If you look at a YouTube video uh, comment area, for example, you just see one liner of one liner. There is no discussion. It's just this flow. For me, it translates into this massive flow of affect. A similar thing happening on Twitch chat, where literally you have to be quite well aware of what's going on to understand anything what's going on. It's this massive flow of affective energy that has, for me, nothing to do with how we would have understood discussion or conversation. So there is this idea that I would say that this is this huge motor for transferring meaning into affective energies globally. And I think that that we should pay more attention to. Yeah, you're you're right. And it reminds me of, uh, I did a project, I don't know, quite a few years ago with a colleague called Gary Graham, and we were looking at how social media affected news 
uh, before, I think before anyone really cared about that. So that's why I'd say nobody has read that paper except maybe mine and Gary's families. Um, but we, we were really interested in this idea that citizen journalism had taken over from professional journalism. And uh, we did some kind of workshops with, with journalists, citizen journalists and professional journalists and so on. And one of my favorite quotes from this, which we we meant to go on and write a second paper with this as the title, but as you do, you get distracted. And the quote from one of the journalists was, you want the senior common room and you get the dog and duck. Now, this is a very British, um, I think I would maybe wouldn't have understand what they were talking about before I lived in Britain for so long. But what they what they were referring to there was the comment section or this online discussion that you're, you're hoping for, you want some high level analysis. And what you get is a few drunks sitting at the bar at the end of a night. So like really like, you know, kind of disconnected discussion. And it is, again, that thing that if we're not investing as a society in this idea of critical debate, uh, critical engagement, then then we have these kind of weird forms of interaction uh, that come to the fore. And, and also, I think this context really goes back to that these media encourage performativity. And there was a really great study done uh, by colleagues from Human Computer Interaction. And I, I, I'm sorry, but I don't remember. I can't remember the author's names, but it was really excellent. And what they did was they looked at responses on social media too. I think you, you discussed this TV show in a, an earlier uh, podcast to show uh, Benefit Street, and they were looking at uh, social media discussion of this show. And what they found was, you know, various kind of responses, and some were very abusive, and some were making fun of the people, and then others were highlighting the kind of social problems uh, that these shows were, were talking about and trying to direct people to more positive outcomes. But what I loved about their study was that they looked, uh, they, they found this, and then they looked back at the other types of comments that these users made, and they found that we follow similar kind of genres of online discussion as people. So it wasn't that people were responding to that show in that particular way, but people used social media to to entertain themselves. So if, if I love shouting at people, then I use social media to shout at people. If I love kind of, gently making jokes, I do that. If I love abusing people, uh, I do that. And if I constantly highlight social issues, then I do that. So there's there's that kind of performativity that's going on. But I think uh, this general affective kind of use is, is definitely there. One thing I'd like to ask you about, Fanola, is, um, I mean, I'm, I'm just generally interested in the uh, relationship between streaming and the general intellect, because on the one hand, there's all this capacity for interpassivity and uh, draining content um, in order to accelerate this um, affect. But on the other hand, it's entirely possible. I mean, this this podcast is a humble example um, that you can use it all to invest in a general intellect that it helps get critical ideas out there. And one thing which is interesting is the kind of subterranean effect of that. So, for example, you and I are both Irish and one broadcaster now, podcaster who's become huge is is Blind Boy Boat Club, whose podcast attracts over a million listens. And often he's talking about issues of politics, of the politics of mental health, very progressive social commentary. 
But because it's in the podcast form, it's really ignored, I think, or disregarded by mainstream media. So this relationship between a subterranean streaming podcast world, which is nonetheless gigantic, um, and the mainstream media, which, which, which tends to be much more self-regarding. Do you, do you think that this kind of tension is something that defines this world of streaming? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, um, I suppose the, the benefit of podcasts, uh, as you well know, I was laughing uh, in, your, in your introductory podcast when you said your friend said that that's what every middle-class, middle-aged kind of white man is doing at the moment is developing a podcast, because uh, <laughs> I've heard that before as well. But I think it's, um, it's almost like when I heard the, the writer, the Irish writer Kevin Barry talk about why so many kind of working class Irish people wrote books and didn't make films. And he said, well, because to write a book, you, you, you know, you just you write a book. You don't need a lot of resources behind you. And I think similarly to, to do a podcast, I mean, to do a bad podcast, you need very little. Obviously, to do it uh, with some kind of level of quality, you need a bit of resource. But essentially, you can do it. And the barriers to entry are very low. And so when, pe when people have a good idea, they go with it. And we see that podcasts like Blind Boys podcast, uh, like a lot of the other podcasts that are doing very well and are very popular, they do talk about big issues and they take this long form interview approach. So another one that I love is Ways to Change the World, uh, Krishna Guru Marthi, where it's kind of an hour interview with someone on a kind of big issue or Irishman Abroad that Jarlath Regan does where you really get into topics. And I think that that is what's missing. So I guess this goes back to what Yoel was, was, was raising a few minutes ago, the, the idea of attention. And so if we are constantly getting sound bites of things, the flip side of that is a real desire to drill down into things and get some kind of insight. And I think it's also kind of appreciates that the spaces that we have in life now for sitting and contemplating and reading a book and really thinking about it are limited by the frenzied nature of life. And so a podcast is a brilliant, you know, you can, you can listen to a podcast while commuting, while running, walking, doing housework, I don't know, whatever you do. And so it's a way to really engage with something um, at a, an intellectual level. And I think that, that also links to this idea of like, what are the media for? And this, I'm hoping that one thing that might come out of this um, period that we're in might be um, to think about this debate that we've been having in the UK, which has been bothersome for me, around the license fee. So the idea that people shouldn't just as a default have to pay a license fee uh, to support uh, public broadcasting in the UK and that we should have this free market model. And it's really pushed by our current government. And they keep saying, oh, well, look how much the license fee costs compared to a Netflix subscription. And in Netflix, you get so much variety and people should be uh, allowed to pay if they feel they want to access the BBC. And what they don't, what they're not appreciate, well, I think what they are appreciating is that the BBC has a remit to make serious programming. You know, the kind of recent um, documentary about the what's going on in the NHS at the moment and so on. Uh, these are, you know, really important ways to get the general population to engage with serious issues in a way that streaming services do not have that remit. They are very much at the entertainment end of the industry. Well, just for the benefit of international listeners, the uh, in Britain, 
the, the BBC is nationalised and there's a licence fee it works out about I think it's £11.70 a month is what I pay and also the BBC stands for Big British Castle I think one interesting idea that we might talk a little bit about here tying into all these things that have been said is the idea of curation so of course I've been talking about streaming and the rise of the YouTuber in a rather critical sense here but of course, it's also true that there is this potential for democratization of media that wasn't possible before, before the internet, or before uh, widespread digital communications. But the key here is, of course, the curation has, for me at least, hasn't gone anywhere. It just changes form. So you still don't personally go through all of YouTube to find what you like. Now you had now just the role of the curator has changed. So there might be somebody else uh, doing a, a YouTube uh, video that tells you what you're supposed to be watching, what you're supposed to like, what you're supposed to be influenced by. The question here is that, of course, there is this democratization that wasn't there before, but simultaneously, I believe we've seen the rise of you know, massive, large-scale conspiracy theorizing, the rise of the alt-right, which is, again, I think, driven by at least in parts by this affectivity that is the particular form of this media, the video and the commentary and the certain passivity that ties into it. So, Finola, what would you feel about the idea of the curator and what is its place today? Yeah, I think that's right. And and the it's, it's even more important uh, now that we have these curators. And so if you look at kind of what what's going on in streaming services, You've got, for me, it's always the kind of movie model. So movie is an indie streamer where they select a small number of films and TV, uh, sorry, films for you every month, and they curate them around themes or particular kind of concepts or whatever, and you have them for the month, and then they change that program. And so what you, you know that if your taste aligns to the movie platform, which is more indie sensibility kind of work, then you know that you'll go in and you'll have stuff to watch that you like. Compared to the Netflix uh, idea where the curation is is left to uh, artificial intelligence. And this artificial intelligence uh, is derived from the assumptions and presumptions of computer scientists. And it's not derived from people who have, um, who are kind of trained in popular culture and so on. But I guess what, what you're going on to as well is the... The, the fact that we can easily access content that fits our worldview. So this kind of, you know, the kind of uh, right-wing media, um, mainly men who have huge audiences on those platforms. And I think that, again, we see the market supporting this. So Patreon, which many of us who support people through Patreon support, you know, kind of artists or support um, creative producers in making their content through small donations every month. But obviously the big kind of right wing um, ideologues make millions from Patreon and they are able to continue their careers, let's say, in uh, spreading their ideology uh, through through earning all this money. Yeah. And uh, of course, that's an interesting notion as well. When curation becomes algorithmic, that's the moment Again, I, I often uh, allude to this when Alan, long time ago, was speaking about hollowing out, hollowing out your own effort, hollowing out your own, you know, human sensibilities. And of course, that is one thing that this algorithmic control that you literally don't take part in because it's automatized for you and you don't know, it, you don't actively even 
know that it's going on behind the scenes. So you might know you might know that that's how algorithms work, but you don't know how they actually work. There's also this hidden mystique about them. So there is there is this. Long time ago, we did the study on dubstep music producers, and uh, one of their biggest lamentations was the idea that there's no effort anymore. There's no effort to acquire skills to know what is good or bad or what is what is uh, high quality music for them. And of course, again, we could read this as, you know, again, these kind of lamentations and gripes of old people who have lost touch of culture, the digitalized culture. Or then we could see the more, uh, you know, more sinister fashion as indeed something that this interpassivizing uh, video culture that we have now entails for us. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's always like it's always that kind of binary. So uh, we can use like we can use the same technological possibilities in what I, from my subject position, would see as positively or negatively. So for me, I remember uh, discovering Last FM. Like I don't know when that was. I feel like it was about fifteen years ago, and so I was someone who grew up loving music, being surrounded by other people who loved music who talked about music all the time, who recommended things to each other. And then as I moved countries and whatever, life changed. I w- I didn't necessarily have those friends around me so much anymore. And I discovered Last FM and Last FM, their subtitle at that time was the last radio station you'll ever need. And it would it was like an early kind of Spotify. Um, but you would you would put in things that you liked and it would suggest to you other things that you might like. And I don't know how they did it, but the way their algorithm was designed, it really, really worked. But I thought that was quite interesting because, you know, alienated, let's say, from real people who could recommend, you know, new music to me. I did have an algorithm that somehow made sense. But then we've got kind of um, the aggressive marketization of this, where we know that certain music or particularly, you know, when we think about how Netflix model has evolved, certain TV shows or films are pushed out to people. And the idea is it's based on your taste, but we know that Netflix fund their own film and TV shows. And if we go right back to the origins of Hollywood, that's when, you know, that's we saw that trend in the origins of, of the Hollywood system where distribution companies went into production. And of course they prioritized their own productions through the distribution channel into the cinemas over those who came from independent sources. And that's what we're seeing with, with Netflix and and so on, that they're promoting the content that it makes sense from a business perspective. So I think that, you know, and then we have, you know, then we have kind of Curzon Home Cinema in the UK, we have the uh, BFI player, we have Mubi, and we have examples of this around the world where you have these curated platforms who know their audiences very well and are suggesting things that they think they'll they'll value in contrast to the kind of mass market just throw content at people platform-based teaching um so this is becoming more popular in different parts of the world where you can sign up for these online classes and then the teachers uh, compete with each other and some of them are capable of generating these really big classes Our suspicion as academics, perhaps, would be that a certain type of gung-ho, kind of boosterist way of teaching uh, will get rewarded, um, and that somebody who can create this kind of positive, effective classroom will be able to generate 
the the biggest amount of attendance. Um, but now that, as a consequence of coronavirus, more and more teaching is shifting online. I wonder, might we see something like that, that a certain type of feel-good teaching, um, a sort of TED Talkization of the academy might take place? Is that something that we should worry about? Yeah, I, God, I definitely would say yes. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, I don't know if this is relevant, but I, I, I had to uh, consume a lot of YouTube videos. Recently, I was, before we started recording, I, I talked about uh, having to quickly cobble together a, uh, an online course. And, um, and, you know, when you, when you read like, oh, what's, what's good in online teaching, uh, you're supposed to break things up and show videos. So I thought, yeah, okay, let's show a few videos. So I went to my friend YouTube and um, when I was looking for content on the things that I was teaching, there were a lot of guys with exactly that TED style, even if they weren't TED Talks. Hey guys, let's come, you know, cut to the simple kind of what are the three key concepts about whatever. And I, I couldn't use any of it. Like it didn't suit at all the way I like to teach, which is present some concepts, unpack them, think about them, think about how you apply them, what works, what doesn't work, you know, try and have a kind of critical approach if possible. And uh, and and so it was it was very it was very difficult. And I, I think you're you're right that if if either of you have had to make a video that you know will be shown to your students when you're not there, I tone it down. <laughs> you know, it's quite bland and upbeat, let's say, uh, and not at all how I like to present myself as an educator. And that's, I think, because we're worried about the context in which um, these things will be seen. So I think that the model that kind of, you know, the marketization of education people have is these fab, dynamic, mainly guys, probably like late 30s, early 40s, hologramming themselves around the world with their explosively charismatic personalities, simplifying these concepts. And then the rest of us, you know, I don't know, will be redundant. I don't know, what, like, what's your, what's your uh, thought about that? I think one thing that protects us from that is the reputation of the university. Uh, or the university brands that mediates between these different competing um, aspects. But I wonder if that's going to become disintermediated uh, in a sense by, by what's about to follow. So if students are going to engage with the university via virtual mechanisms, the, the reputation of the college guarantees very little in terms of the ability of the faculty to be able to put together good quality uh, online content uh, it's entirely possible that companies like Kaplan and others will, will have a huge starting advantage in all of this. Well, there, there was a study uh, that I saw quite a few years ago, and I don't, I don't remember the author at all or where it was published, but I thought it was really interesting. And it was showing how European universities on their web pages, they talked about the university, the reputation of the university, the quality of the research, whatever. And it was much more common in top US universities to highlight star academics. So we have these people. It was very much the, the cult of personality kind of approach versus the seat of learning kind of approach. Um, so I think we, we already have that hybrid where, where, some, where universities are encouraged to develop kind of star academics. But then those star academics can body up with uh, some of these other companies and make their fortunes.
now that we also already mentioned uh, conspiracy theories and uh, the coronavirus situation, how would you consider all of this massive, you know, movements of information and data in a video form or in other forms, in streamed form, uh, in the current situation? Of course, conspiracy theories have been with us for ages, but to me there seems to be a certain intensification of them going on, especially looking at what's happening in the United States. Yeah, I think um, I think it goes back to that ontological position of the media. So, so somehow when when it's presented to us in an audiovisual form, it feels like it's some kind of reality, and particularly some of the people spreading conspiracy theories are using very professional media. So it looks like any kind of news report. And so it has the same validity, I would say. And I guess it goes back to maybe, you know, Stuart Hall's idea of uh, dominant and oppositional reading. So what for us might seem a conspiracy theory for somebody else is, you know, reflecting their reality position or whatever. So I think it, I think it's kind of um, the democratization of the production of media has definitely meant that you can present all ideas equally from a kind of ontological position. The word astroturfing seems to be thrown around quite a bit these days. So the idea that precisely maybe also through algorithmic manipulation, but just by manipulating certain messages, you can create the illusion of grassroots movements, even though they are basically uh, managed uh, behind the scenes by putting out certain types of social media information. Of course, the one one of the most notable ones uh, lately being the American protests against the lockdown, which were massively influenced by people of the Trump uh, organization. Yeah, and that that is that whole thing of we're at a time now where the nature of media is not very clearly demarcated. So there was a period where because of the regulation of these spaces like film or TV, where they were shown uh, the, the kind of context. And there was a distinction between paid for advertising, entertainment content, whatever. And now there's this real, for a couple of reasons, I think one reason is the kind of breakdown of ad revenue generally. So that's meant that that companies have thought about cleverer ways to get messages out to people. Uh, and so one of my PhD students, Katerina Stolli, is doing um, her PhD on branded entertainment. And it's very, she's very much uh, interested in this uh, tension between presenting commercial messages in entertainment products and what's legitimate and not legitimate in that space. And so I think the, there's other work by people like Stefan Dahl about how alcohol companies have used social media to get around advertising regulations. So it's just content and people are drinking, but it's not advertising. And so that, those kind of early examples that have come from kind of corporates have very much been embraced by, by other movements now where it just looks like innocent content. You're not required to say uh, where it came from or who funded it. It's very problematic, I think. I mean, I would think that because I don't agree with their views. So for other people, they might see it as very liberating. Another outcome of the coronavirus is that a lot of the mainstream media have been featuring content from people who are clearly recording at home, uh, as we are, you know, with internal microphones and laptops as, as the source of audio. Or I'm thinking of the Together at Home 
concert with Lady Gaga and the Rolling Stones et al., where this kind of amateur production quality becomes the mass medium. And that seems to be something quite seismic in the sense that the, the mainstream media, people like BBC, are willing now to accept content that's made with these amateur production tools. And I wonder, might there be something like a genie has been let out of the bottle that mainstream media loses its ability to have that extra level of production quality um, and, and recognizes a sort of level playing field in a way that, that might be a permanent change. What, what do you think of that? I think it will, it will play out. But, I mean, for me personally, I miss professionally created media. So, I mean, yeah, I miss going to a venue where the whole purpose of that venue is to present, let's say, a performance in a particular way around other people who are appreciating that performance. But I think there was a novelty effect in seeing inside people's homes. So a lot of the early kind of BBC kind of stuff, people were like walking around their houses saying, oh, there's my daughter lying in bed doing her homework or whatever. Um, and I think that's kind of died down a bit now because we're not that bothered. And also people are using the different backgrounds and whatever. I, I don't know whether it will, because I think that there's always kind of novelty in terms of production values. So when we have a lot of slick production values, how you differentiate yourself is you show more DIY sensibility. Uh, and maybe out of, after this, we'll be really fed up with DIY sensibility and we want to return to much more slick production. So I, I'm not sure about that, but I definitely think that all of this, these kind of things we're seeing, all these innovations around how people are bringing people into their home and the production values that are happening there are interesting. So, um, yeah. Thanks very much, Finola. This has been a great talk. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Yes, thank you. It was wonderful, Finola. <laughs>